friends, and welcome to The World Transform. This program is your guide to an astounding future that lies ahead, a future that will be here sooner than you think, and that you have an important role to play in bringing about. At The World Transform, we want to introduce you to what may be the greatest transformation of them all, the one that begins with considering and acting on the almost limitless possibilities that lie before us, and that ends somewhere beyond the reach of the human imagination. So, when does this amazing future begin? Well, today is the day. My name is Phil Bowermaster, and with me in the virtual studio is my co-author, co-futurist, and co-host, Stephen Gordon. Hello, Stephen. Hey, Phil. How are you? Well, I am super fantastic. Happy Monday. How are you, my friend? Man, I'm doing great. Doing great. This one, uh, are you feeling today, enlightened uh, at all? Let me ask you that. Let's just start <laughs> with that. Well, that, Critical that, that is the question, because we're going to delve kind of deep into the intellectual underpinnings of you know, this show and uh, really of everything we do right now. Why do, yeah. why do we do what we do? We, we've talked a lot about that, and we're going to take a somewhat different view of it. And I should say that this week is going to be kind of, I don't know, philosophy week on the World Transform, because we're going to... We're going to hit some philosophical stuff on Wednesday as well, although from perhaps a bit more practical of a standpoint. This one is just pure intellectual exercise. We're doing the hard work on Monday. I think that's only appropriate, right? If you're going to, right, if you're going right, to dive right. into, the, into the heavy sledding on philosophy, do it on a Monday. That's the, that's the way to get the week off to a, to a good start. So we got this article over in the Wall Street Journal. And sorry if you can't get past the paywall on that, but try Googling the title of it if our link doesn't work, but it's called The Age of Enlightenment. What's it called? It's called The Enlightenment is Working, basically, by Steven Pinker. And this is a wonderful piece. The first, I don't know, half to two-thirds of it is a recounting of the kinds of news that we so often report on this program. And I'll read just a little, just a little excerpt to give you a feel for this. He starts off talking about what things were like in the U.S. 30 years ago, and he talks about homicide rate and several other measures of basically economic and social well-being and how vastly things have improved for us in the U.S. And then he takes up the, the global cause, and he says, Globally, the 30-year scorecard also favors the present. In 1988, 23 wars raged, killing people at a rate of 3.4 per 100,000. Today, it's 12 wars, killing 1.2 per 100,000. The number of nuclear weapons has fallen from... 60,780 to 10,325. In 1988, the world had just 45 democracies embracing 2 billion people. Today it has 103 embracing 4.1 billion. That year saw 46 oil spills, 2016 just 5. And 37% of the population lived in extreme poverty, barely able to feed themselves, compared with 9.6% today. True, 2016 was a bad year for terrorism in Western Europe with 238 deaths, but 1988 was even worse, with 440. So it's a great compendium, kind of counting those down. And I like those examples because those are all kind of in the sweet spot of Steven Pinker. Obviously, he's the author of right. The Better Angels of Our Nature. But we talk about this all the time. He starts out talking about left and right. They disagree on almost everything. But the one thing they agree on is that the world's going to hell in a handbasket, right? The, the, just, the, they just look <laughs> at it happening for different reasons, right? It's, it's, that's right, that's right. And they're, they're, their solutions are radically different, but they, they agree that it's, it's, things are real bad and accelerating and how bad they're getting. And, yeah, uh, if, if you talk to anyone who is highly politically motivated, I'd say there's a upwards of 90% chance that their outlook on the future is reasonably bleak. 
it's 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 a matter of saying things are going to be terrible unless right everything's going bad and if we don't get on board with the program then the world is going to hell so Steven Pinker's a little bit of a gadfly because he's this guy who says you know what we've had left in power we've had the right in power we have had certain approaches to government we've had other approaches to government and here's what's generally happening what's generally happening is everything's getting better this is the point we make all the time it's not unique to us you hear it from people like Ray Kurzweil, who talks about the law of accelerating change. We've just seen this, I think, growing awareness of it over the past decade or so. But that happens at the same time that there's been this growing polarization of political discourse, and probably a lot more people persuaded that things are a lot worse, maybe, than they would have been, just because of how people talk about politics. So, okay, so far, so good. Steven Pinker making our typical case. Couldn't agree with him more. But I want to read another little passage that goes a little deeper. He says, To what do we owe this progress? Does the universe contain a historical dialectic or arc bending toward justice? The answer is less mysterious. The Enlightenment is working. Our ancestors replaced dogma, tradition, and authority with reason, debate, and institutions of truth-seeking. They replaced superstition and magic with science, and they shifted their values from the glory of the tribe, nation, race, class, or faith toward universal human flourishing. So he's talking about the Age of Enlightenment, which basically is a, what would you call it, philosophical movement, I guess, right? That occurred right, right. back in the 18th 1700s, century. right? Yeah. Yeah, 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 18th century, 1700s, yes. And, um, you know, it, I, I love the the um, motto, basically, of the Enlightenment was dare to know, right? Right, uh, exactly. We could and, always use that. Know, that's a, yeah, and it, it, that's a, uh, and, and because, you know, so much truth had been handed down for so long, and you can, see, you can kind of see why. You know, during, uh, uh, you know, actually, humanity had peaked before this right i mean and 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 so we lived in the dark ages where you were always looking back to some grand golden age where people knew more and things were better and so during that time it's it it was hard to kick off an age of enlightenment when you were you were always trying to appeal to authority right some plato and aristotle and socrates socrates and and people like that and and so uh, you, we basically had to advance to a point where we were on par with those guys before the age of enlightenment could really kick off right because right. we had to we had to say okay we we've we've gleaned what we could out of these guys and we're actually getting ahead of that now now we can kind of relegate that to where it needs to be these ideals were brilliant and uh we owe a lot to that but that's not the end of what we can not so that was that was really the beginning of the enlightenment when we uh, actually uh, dragged ourselves thanks to the renaissance out of the dark ages and uh and actually got past the uh, ancient greeks and it's, uh, and it's interesting the the ancient greeks had for a time at least some of the ideas that that helped to drive the Enlightenment. There's a there's a real connection between all the progress that we see in then the 19th and 20th centuries, and yes, the Enlightenment, but also the scientific revolution. We we see industrialization begin, and that's driven by science. And of course, the scientific revolution is this 
philosophical break. It's this idea of the fundamental knowledge you need about the world is discoverable. It's something you can go out and you can find it out. You can, you can do tests, you can do experiment, experiments, and you can learn, and you can add to the body of knowledge. That model versus, well, the body of knowledge is embedded in the wisdom of people who lived in the past, and our job is to study that and get as up to speed on all of that as we can be, and then you'll be an educated person. And by looking to what these great men of the past knew, that's basically that's the most you can hope for. That's the, that's the key. That's the height of knowledge. So when you, you turn this corner and you say that knowledge is this, is this matter of going out and finding things out, that both the ordering of the natural world and then also by extension kind of the ordering of the moral universe are things that we can reason about things that we can learn about and reason about and, and figure out the answers to rather than turning to authorities. There you have not only then this big intellectual awakening, but this big political awakening where the Enlightenment enables the thinking that led to the formation of this country. And it led to basically all of the move towards democratization in Europe. So it's this, it's this huge opening up of human perspective. And I, I think it's, it's really interesting to credit that. And I think we've not thought about that very much. We, we have talked about over the years, the human imperative being kind of our take on the law of accelerating term uh, returns, Ray Kurzweil's idea of simply, we, we've gotten better and better at basically at encoding data, right? Isn't that what, right. what, what it comes down to? The better we get at encoding data, the better we get at everything else. And that has driven this tremendous technological progress. And it's what's behind the Industrial Revolution. It's what's behind the age of digitization. And if we're moving towards some really grand outcome like the technological singularity, it's that driver, it's that ability to digitize, that ability to encode data that, that has put us there. But I think you can look at this and it's hard not to say, yeah, that was important, but it looks like accompanying that was this just massive change of outlook that enabled us to take advantage of that capability. Because while we had been encoding data better and better all along, we never turned that corner before. And we had opportunities to turn that corner before, too. One of the things I'm really interested in reading this, I, I think I've mentioned, if I haven't mentioned on the show before, I know you and I have talked about, Stephen, I've been reading this book called, actually this series of books, called The Story of Civilization by Will Durant. And it's like this 12-volume story of all of, basically all of civilized human history. And one of the things that I was really surprised by, I just never thought about much, is when he's talking about what's happened a long time ago in China and in Asia and in some other places that I hadn't thought about, he, he talks about the philosophical movements that evolved in those places or philosophers who showed up maybe 1,500 years ago in India or a thousand years ago in China. And he says, and if you read this argument, yeah, that's essentially Immanuel Kant, right? The, this, this argument is yeah. indistinguishable from what Kant says in the categorical imperative, the, the critique of pure reason. Or this guy is exactly like Rousseau. And here's another one, you know, Chinese guy writing 1,100 years ago, very much like Hobbes, almost the, almost the same arguments. So these ideas from the Enlightenment, they popped up. They showed yeah. up earlier in human history, but we didn't have the Enlightenment. 
Now, why is that? Well, it, it could be several things. It could be that it did have to be timed with we just hit that right phase of being able to encode data. That's one possibility, right? Right. The other possibility had, had, is had to that, be had to be post printing press. You know, I'm pretty sure. Well, they invented printing yeah. in China a long time ago. You know, yeah. that's the thing. They've, they've, they've had it forever. Um, so it could have happened there, right? Uh, but it didn't. Yeah. So there, there might have there been, been other factors. And, of course, printing was a different deal in China because the Latin alphabet has 26 characters. The Chinese pictograms, there's like 60,000 of them, right? So right. <laughs> even, even though they invented movable type a long time ago, it, it might have made a huge difference in terms, of, in terms of how well that caught on. So it could be that that actually moving, t- moving printing to the West was a- an example of being able to encode data a lot better just because we have this much more efficient way of, of, of printing information. But yeah, it's, it's possible it was that. It's possible that it was, it, it, was, it was some other kind of subtle advances that we don't know. It's also possible that, yeah, you did have a guy in India saying it 1,500 years ago and a guy in China saying it 1,100 years ago. But what you had here in the Enlightenment was all these guys within 100 years of each other saying these things, right? And, right. And, and, and they and being play off to. of one another. It's, you know, yeah. they're, since they're in roughly the same time and place, you know, uh, they can play off of each other. And uh, we, we should uh, not tip our hat to uh, at least three Americans that were to some extent uh, and, and tangentially involved, right? You got Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson and James Madison. Yeah, well, um, not uh, for, from our standpoint. Certainly, not just tangentially. They they brought those yeah, ideas I mean, here. They, and, they were the fountainhead of enlightenment for our country, right? Yeah, uh, for the United States. But uh, and uh, but you know, at least uh, at least uh, Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin actually probably made contributions on the continent in in Europe, right? So because they were they were there. Can I uh, just backtrack and just say the earliest example I know of Enlightenment thinking, Bill? I want to just kind of throw this. Oh, in. go ahead. Where? Yes. Okay. Um, the the book that's not in every person's Bible. It's uh, Ecclesiasticus, not Ecclesiastes. Mm-hmm. Ecclesiasticus uh, asks the question: uh, Who can know the grains of sand in the world? Or you know, and it's, it's basically you know the typical thing of. Only God can know that. But there's 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 uh, information for God to have, and then there's information for us to have, and it will never be you know any, any different, right? It was that that idea. Archimedes wrote a lighthearted response to that about within a, within a hundred years of the of the penning of Ecclesiasticus. He writes the Sand Reckoner. And in in that uh, in that uh, response, he basically goes and you know he says the average depth of the, of the deserts and sand and on beaches and and does some calculations <laughs> and, and and comes back with something that's probably within an order or two of magnitude of uh, of, of a correct response for the at least for the sand uh, he could be aware of right in his hmm. time. And um, and his point was not that he was going to actually tell you how much sand was in the world, but that there you know. There's so much that's not out of our reach, and and uh, and just to throw up your hands and to say that it is, uh, and and that this is the eternal condition of humanity is not the right approach is what he was trying to say, that's and uh, I think that's some enlightenment thinking very very early. Again, he was not in the right place, was he? You know, he, um, 
he, he didn't have printing presses and everything else to get his ideas out. And, and he was, you know, I'm sure he had lots of students, but, uh, you know, he was not the, uh, a part of a group of enlightened thinkers. So, yeah, yeah. I, th- I think that's a, that's a really good point you make. And if you look, there are probably lots of little examples of enlightened thinking all through history. And, and by that, we just mean times that it got encoded and written down and was part of a philosophical discourse, because we know that we wouldn't even be here if human beings didn't have this kind of innate drive to figure things out and get to the, get to the answer. And what, and what happens with the Enlightenment is that what Archimedes does there becomes the rule, right, rather than, right. Rather than being uh, this opposition force. Because, yeah, essentially the author of Ecclesiasticus, he represents the power of the right. world, right? That, that's who's running things, is that attitude, right? <laughs> and yeah. Archimedes comes along and says, you know what, you don't have to do it that way, you can do it this way. And in the Enlightenment, what we see happening is the political forces actually start to adopt that approach. They say, you know what, people like Archimedes have a point. We can make some progress here if we start to... If, if we start to if we start to undertake these things, so this is good see i think I think that Pinker has really dialed into something here. I think he has really figured something out here, which is that that this philosophical shift is a major part of why we 're on the course we 're on, and you and i Stephen, I think already knew that it was a good course. we already knew that things were improving, but the question is. Will things continue to improve? Are we going to are we going to stay on this trajectory of improvement? Does the fact that we had the enlightenment back then guarantee it, or do we have to kind of keep the lights on? Right? Do, do, do we not have to make sure that the enlightenment continues? And if that's true, do we then not have to be on the lookout for forces that are frankly anti-enlightenment at work out here in our world? And I think. You know, those were all spoken as rhetorical questions, but I'll just answer them. Yes, we do. We have to look at this. We have to be. We have to be thinking about this, because if the Enlightenment enabled our encoding of information and all of our technology to move us in those directions, an authoritarian approach to the world can just sit on top of all that technology, right? It can. It can sit there and it can rapidly slow us down in terms of progress, and it can turn off the whole freedom thing and many of the other good developments that occurred throughout the Enlightenment. So are there anti-Enlightenment forces at work in the world today, Stephen, what do you think, in our world, say, in the, in the United States? Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, there, are, there are people that are nationalists that you know, would appeal to a strong central government or, uh, instead, of, uh, instead of to reason. Um, you know, there are uh, any number of uh, forces, you know, the alt-right, the uh, militant environmentalists, uh, to some extent, would be the same way, on, on the op- probably on the opposite end of the political spectrum. Yeah, the, there are plenty of people that uh, are included, and I would count us among the people that are uh, concerned about some aspects of automization, right? I mean, you know, that that's going to be a tough... Uh, that's going to be a, 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 a tough transitional period. We, we agree with that, but uh, we, we wouldn't want to relinquish it, the technology that's bringing us to this point either. So you just power through is basically the way we've kind of answered that. But 
there are those who are so concerned about automation that they would Luddite style just uh, want to throw away a lot of the advances we've made. I challenge some of the people that are, are sort of anti-enlightenment, uh, you know, go, go camping for a week without a shower. <laughs> you know, give it up for one week and uh, then come back and tell me, uh, tell me if you still feel the same way about uh, the, the, world, uh, the, the world that the enlighten, enlightenment has given us. Um, but, exactly. But, I, I think it's, it's crazy to turn your back on the thing that has opened up so much for us. And it's ironic to use – who was it I heard talking about this the other day? I thought it was just hilarious, and it was so, so right on the money. You see these people on Twitter, these anti-capitalists on Twitter, right? right? And you can tell they're doing it from a smartphone, Right, so <laughs> right. probably sitting on an airplane, smartphone. right? Yeah. yeah. So you, you know, there, there there is this self-refuting aspect to being opposed to the Enlightenment, and I think it's true. Yeah. I think it's it's the, the, it's almost like they want to be. You know, I'm 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 edgy because of this. No, no, yes. you're dumb. If you if you well, if you've embraced <laughs> the um, modern world to the point that you're sitting on a uh, jet plane jetting between destinations and you're on a smartphone. But you're espousing that, I, you know. I don't know. There's uh, maybe just a completely lack of sense of irony or something. I don't know. But uh, yeah, well, I, th- uh, I think there's a there's a wonderful spot in the middle politically where we're still pretty much pro enlightenment. I think I think the, yeah. the 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 mainstream is still kind of in favor of most of that stuff. And what we see is kind of on the left and on the right these moves away from it. On the left. I think it's come up through academia, and you've got this, this postmodernist yeah. movement, which is, is really interesting. I was reading this article. I'll, I'll share the link here, talking about postmodernism as the Enlightenment gone mad, or kind of the, the Enlightenment turning in on itself. Because once you open things up, once you say, hey, we're not going to follow those authorities anymore, and we're going to figure things out for ourselves, you're on, a, you're on an interesting course. You're on a course that can lead to a lot of different directions. Well, with postmodernism, you eventually reach this point where you say, well, we we challenge all authority, including our reason. We challenge all authority, including every every argument that's led up to to where we're we're sitting right now. All perspectives on the universe, and, and this emerges actually out of a literary criticism model that says all perspectives on a text are equally valid which I don't agree with, speaking as a former English major, but we won't go there. But when you apply that to <laughs> yeah, looking there, at... There are some, there are some uh, ways of reading that are, uh, a text that are better than others. Yeah, I agree. Too. I, I think. That's me. Yeah. But you know what? We don't have time for a whole yeah, literary word, thing. Words have meaning. Let's uh, leave it at that. <laughs> I, I think they do. I think they do. Yeah. I think authors intend things. <laughs> That's why they write. Um, but but when, when, when you take that principle and then apply it to observing the world... Well, this comes, I mean, we come back to one of my core subjects these days, which is reality. And I think there are interpretations of reality that are more effective than other interpretations of reality. I think there are, there are a wide variety of ways you can look at the world. And, and technology is going to make it easier and easier for us to create our own realities and live in our own realities. But some of them will be valid to the extent that they actually succeed, that they actually sustain people and get people to the next step and don't kill them. And some won't. And I think yeah. it's perfectly fair to say the ones that kill you are no good, right? The ones yeah. that enslave you or kill you or do those kinds of things are bad. So the, 
the, the postmodernists, you know, they push right through that and end up in a place where you can't, you can't evaluate anything and yet then generally do adopt a narrative and 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 it's one that's kind of anti-enlightenment it, it you know the yeah you know just you know basically since you can't trust your own reason anymore you just have to trust me mm. right that's, that's authoritative yeah well essentially you end up with a whole new authoritarianism that's right you end up with a whole new we're going to decree how it is and this is and this is how it's going to be and then right. and then on the other side you've got folks involved in the the alt-right, particularly the white nationalists and the dark enlightenment. I don't know if you have to be careful and distinguish amongst groups in the alt-right anymore. I think it's just generally understood now that people who self-identify as alt-right are okay with being in a group with white nationalists and, and stuff like that. So if, if I'm offending anyone who thinks they're like the nice, legitimate alt-right, I'm sorry. You know what? You've got white nationalists in, in your group. It's, uh, you can tell me it's a delicious tuna sandwich that only has 1% dog crap, and I'm going to tell you it's a dog crap sandwich. Yeah, point, so. keep, yeah keep, keep your dog crap sandwich. We don't want it. <laughs> um, yeah. um, but yeah. but there, there's even this group that's grown up out of that. I mean, so, so the, the white nationalists, they've, they've adopted a whole new identity politics, which I don't think I mentioned is kind of the big driver of the narrative that the post-structuralists and post-modernists have picked up. So you've got identity politics on one side. You've got identity politics on the other side. And those lay down a whole set of parameters. They lay down a whole set of this is what we have to talk about, this is what we have to focus on, and this is who's valid, this is who's not valid. Basically, anti-enlightenment thinking, right? And, and, and you, see it, you see it on both sides. The dark enlightenment, these, these guys have gone even farther than that. I mean, they're, they're basically saying, oh, yeah, the whole experiment was wrong. We need to go back to monarchies. We need to go back to authority. And, it, it, I mean, it, it almost just goes to show you that you, eventually you land everywhere, right? Intellectually, anything. <laughs> that, that is a thing I would never have expected to see become a thing in my life, right? The dark enlightenment. Yeah. And it's interesting that people we know, people we've had on this program, are like major movers in the dark enlightenment, right? Which is astounding to me. But someone came out of the, the whole transhumanist movement and went in that direction. I think went in exactly the opposite direction of where we need to go. And more recently, you know, just on a personal note on Facebook, I had to unfriend somebody a couple weeks ago just because I've seen him slowly go down this white nationalist path and yeah, I just couldn't stand I, to read it anymore. I, I, I know who you're talking about. Won't say his, won't say his name, but uh, yeah. yeah, that's uh, that's and that's a sad thing to see. You know, so basically, Phil, basically what we're saying to some extent is that uh, you you know there's many roads, but they lead tend tend to lead only two places, right? Uh, to some sort of authoritarian kind of world, or to a freer world, right? I mean, it's you know, and, and you got to be careful, I guess what what uh, roads you get on and where it takes you. Uh, I think that's right. I, th I think either they're, either they're, either you're on a path that's saying people should be freer and that we've got to keep yeah. figuring things out and we've got more to learn, or you're on a path that yeah. says people and, should be and, less and free and, and I've got the acknowledge We can acknowledge that, hey, you know, our, our reason is, is maybe not, you know, 100% perfect and we're going we're gonna to figure things out that are, you know, that are wrong initially and then, have to go back and you know we can we can acknowledge that our, our imperfection but still say it's the best tool we've got right i mean we we can't you know, can't throw away reason just because occasionally we reason something wrong 
And so <laughs> that's right. Yeah. That's exactly right. You, you you're throwing out the baby with the bathwater at that point, and that's right. And and you got nothing left. If at that point, what you have left is the will to power, right? Whoever right. can talk the loudest, and whoever can enforce what they say with the most guns wins. It, once once you put reason away, and basically that's the world we lived in before the Enlightenment, right? I mean, right. The, the 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 winners were the people who had the armies to back them up, and their truth that they that they handed down. I mean, they considered a good truth, and it had a it had a whole civilization backing it up. But well, we know, weren't going to pro- um, progress to where we are with that. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 the idea of. The, the divine right of sovereigns, right? I mean, it, God chose God chose your king, and your king, uh, um, and 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 you also have your uh, the the church, and it's going to it's going to tell you how what to believe, and then the monarch is going to tell you what wars to fight, and uh, that's that's pretty much your life, you know. Yeah, and it's astounding. Yeah. I mean, the dark enlightenment folks—they're saying, "Yep, we got to go back to that," because yeah. <laughs> because democracy gives you bad results sometimes. And it's like, oh, you're right. It does give you bad results sometimes, but monarchy is a bad result every time, right? I mean, there's there's yeah. no way that's going. That's that's you gonna know, be the yeah, right it's, answer. It, it's you know, it's been said about democracy, and, and it, I, it may have been Winston Churchill who said it that uh, you know it's it's a terrible form of government. It's just the best one we have. You know? Yeah, well, it's it's the worst form of government except for all the others, is what Churchill said. Except for all the others, yes, that's what and I think said, that's right. Yeah, I think that's still true. I think that's exactly yeah. that's exactly right. So there you have it. We are pro enlightenment at the world transformed. We've we're taking a we're taking a big stand here. Okay. We, we're taking <laughs> I, a big, I, I've got a mental image of us standing in the harbor with a. <laughs> with the torch, Bill. It's uh, that's right. <laughs> that's that's right. We're all yeah. about liberty, fraternity, equality. Maybe, and it's interesting. We'll we'll explore this further at some point because I know there's there's distinction made sometimes between the English Enlightenment and the French Enlightenment. But we didn't we didn't take you know it's a half hour show. We didn't take the chance to go all that deep in there. And then and it leads to Kant. It leads to Nietzsche. And there's there's all these paths we can walk down and you can, and you can talk about how it ultimately led, you know, it leads to Marx and it leads to its own self refutation. But somewhere back there, there was a good collection of ideas and there's a real turning point in human history. And as Steven Pinker points out, you can see the results of it by looking around at the improvements in the world that we see today. Now we want to double down on those improvements and the way to do that, is to keep the lights on. And with that, That's Stephen, right. I think we're going to let that be the last <laughs> word. We'll, Absolutely. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll pick it up on Wednesday with another philosophical topic. So great talking with you. Great having you all with us. And until next time, live to see it. <laughs> <laughs>